With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 75. It's titled, We Have to Invest Somewhere. In early 1998, two and a half years into my tenure as an institutional investment advisor, I was the consultant to a $150 million endowment fund for a liberal arts college located in the Midwest. Each quarter, I met with the college's investment committee. The meetings were held at a trustee's law office on the 54th floor of a skyscraper with views of the cityscape below and the cornfields that stretched out for miles in all directions. I felt as if I was at the top of the world as I looked at that view. At the same time, I felt I was in over my head when it came to advising this committee in this college on how to allocate the institution's investment portfolio. My transportation to get to and from the meetings was a white Toyota Tercel. It had huge black bumpers. It was a gutless four-speed manual, and it smelled like vinyl and plastic. It even had an extra four-pack of plastic hubcaps that I kept in the trunk, or was kept in the trunk, in case, I guess, in case the originals fell off. My lapel and I, we called it the Little Auto, and I had gone to the Toyota dealership and leased the cheapest Toyota I could find. I made a point when I would go to these meetings for this college to park it several blocks away so nobody could see this car. I felt I was embarrassed by it to the extent that I was supposed to be the successful investment advisor helping these trustees manage their endowment fund. My agenda at the January 1998 meeting was to convince the college to invest in what are known as non-investment grade bonds or high-yield bonds, sometimes they're known as junk bonds. This is debt issued by companies that have been rated speculative by the major rating agencies. And they're considered speculative because the cash flow the companies generate to cover principal and interest payments is less certain than it is for investment-grade credits. And the amount of free cash flow that is remaining after debt service, then this free cash flow really acts like a margin of safety. It's lower relative to higher-grade credits. In other words, these are riskier bonds and have a higher risk of default. They're attracted to investors because they carry, because they are riskier, they carry a higher interest rate compared to government bonds, investment grades, corporates. And then so, theoretically, they can generate a higher annualized return over time if the default rates remain low. Now, I was a novice when it came to non-investment grade bonds. And so the source of my education was other sort of non-investment grade bond managers, the high-yield bond managers. At our firm in those early days, we didn't have a centralized research group. So I worked as a consultant, as advisor, but I was also an analyst. And so I decided to research non-investment grade bonds. I would meet with dozens of managers in the area, and I came up with why I thought that would be good 
for my clients, and so I was taking the recommendation to them. And those managers were more than happy to bring me up to speed on the asset class and to share their expertise and how they select high-yield credits. So I went to the meeting early January, and I was really, really pleased that they accepted my allocation to, to or my recommendation to allocate approximately 5% of their bond portfolio, actually the overall portfolio to high-yield bonds. And and I was pleased because their existing bond manager was very, very conservative, and this was a way to get some incremental return. So that was the January meeting. In April, we met again and selected a firm to manage this assignment. After that April meeting, I was back in our home office in Cincinnati, and the founder of our firm, Fred, asked me, why would I make such a recommendation? given all the capital that was flooding into the sector that had pushed down yields and lowered the expected return. He caught me off guard. But I answered in the same way that all good investment advisors answer whenever they add a new asset class to a portfolio. Diversification. That's what I answered. Now, here's the thing about diversification. I, now, I was trying to do what was in the best interest of my client. I clearly thought this was. But diversification is often used as a crutch to justify investments that are ill-timed or should not have been undertaken at all. And this particular investment, the founder of my firm, was right. It was ill-timed. I made a classic investment mistake. I was enamored with the historical performance of this asset class, and I ignored the primary driver of those historical returns, and I ignored the current investment conditions that would influence future returns. Now, again, this is only two and a half years into my experience. So investing involves making mistakes, and the key is, did I learn from those mistakes? So after the 1991 recessions, investors became much more comfortable with non-investment-grade bonds as defaults gradually decrease. And this resulted in more capital flowing into the sector, and that would push up the price of the bonds and would lower the yields. Because we talked about in earlier episodes how bond prices move inverse to interest rates. And so with all this capital flowing into the sector, that served to push down yields, the value of those bonds went up, and that is one of the reasons returns had looked so good. After, at the peak of the 1991 recession, high-yield bonds yielded more than 12% more than 10-year Treasury bonds. And by 1998, when I made this allocation, they were yielding less than 10%. So they had fallen, yields had fallen relative to Treasuries, almost 8 percentage points. Investor appetite for these bonds was very, very large given the strong performance. They had a huge tailwind. And so there was a great deal of new issuance, much of which was used to build out communication networks for the expanding internet. Now, I had no way of knowing high-yield bonds were going to, that I essentially bought at the top. And, And the managers that were educating me, they didn't know this was the top. But I should have known that those bonds were richly priced and had benefited from a strong tailwind. And the likelihood of achieving the returns that were there in the past would be unlikely. 
We allocated that manager in May 2008. That summer, the Asian financial crisis hit. And then later was followed up by the internet bust, 9-11 and a recession. Non-investment-grade bonds yields rose on an absolute basis and relative to U.S. treasuries. And as a result of those yields going up, the value of those bonds went down. Many of those bonds defaulted, particularly those that had helped build out the Internet. And because it was a huge excess supply of communication capacity, defaults because defaults increased and yields were going up, spreads were widening, my client's allocation severely underperformed relative to their existing bond managers and the overall bond market as a whole. I made a mistake in the cause or justified by diversification. Diversification is nice, but it matters what you're allocating to and the timing of what you're allocating. Now, when I look at, I've talked about non-investment-grade bonds before. Way back in episode 14, Are You a Complacent Investor?, That came out in July 2014. I again talked about how spreads, the differential between what non-investment-grade bonds were yielding relative to U.S. Treasuries was very, very low. Going back to 1983, the average spread between high-yield bonds and U.S. Treasuries is about 500 basis points, or that would be 5 percentage points points. And I mentioned in 1998, it had gotten below 4%. And in July 2014, it was almost 2% differential. So very, very low, well below average. Now, we're exactly at average, about 5%. Overall, non-investment grade bonds are yielding 7%. The, the absolute yield, the highest it's been really going back to 2011, and the spread is average. What do we do? Now, that's a tough question because it's not an allocation that's overvalued nor it's undervalued. It's in that sort of that middle ground where investments, many investments are for much of the time. In other words, you're, you're getting a 7% yield Defaults are still low. There's no indication the U.S. is heading into a recession. And, you know, a 7% yield is a pretty good yield. So I have a small allocation to non-investment-grade bonds. But it brings up really the point of this podcast or this episode. We have to invest somewhere. I mean, there's always things going on. And some, some investments can clearly be overvalued. Some investments can be undervalued, but the vast majority of the time, different asset classes are somewhere in between. I just spent the last five days, so this today's Tuesday, I'm recording this. I got back yesterday from Charlotte. I attended the FinCon Expo. It's the financial blogger, financial podcaster conference, and and there actually are a lot of non-financial bloggers and non-financial podcasters that that visit. And it was great. I hosted a or I moderated a session with Farnoosh Tarabi of the So Money podcast, with Joshua Sheets of Radical Personal Finance, 
of Joe Saul Sihai of the Stacking Benjamins podcast and Josh Elledge of the Savings Angel podcast. And, and I got to speak with many, many other financial bloggers and podcasters, those in the media, and certainly some of their corporate sponsors. And it was a great event, but it really caused me to reflect, particularly as I spent some time, it was nice to get away, and spend some time looking at the results of the survey that that a number of you filled out. And, and, if, and if you haven't filled out the listener survey, that's at moneyfortherestofus.net. There'll be a link there. I'll keep it up for another couple of weeks. And I really, really appreciate the response. But it's been pretty eye-opening because my first question was, what is your biggest investment challenge or challenge related to money currently? And it was an open-ended question. So I didn't give give sort of canned answers. I wanted to listen or read your words directly. And, and, I, and I've gone through, and there's been well over 100 responses, and I have read every single one of them. And, and the, there, there are many different challenges. People face a tremendous variety of challenges. But if there's one that is predominant, if I, if I could put it this way, where do I invest? How do I allocate my assets so that I can generate a sufficient return in order to retire or to live in retirement? How do I allocate assets? Which is the same challenge that I dealt with with this university client. How should I allocate their assets so they could support their 5% spending rate and keep those assets into perpetuity? That's what you as listeners deal with, your, your biggest challenge. How do I allocate my assets? And will I earn a sufficient return given my current savings rate to be able to live in retirement? Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts, high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. 
LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When I was an institutional investment advisor, I had the crutch of modern portfolio theory to rely on to help figure out what a client's asset allocation would be. And if you were on the webcast I did a few weeks ago, and you can still go to moneyfortherestofus.net at the bottom of the homepage, you can sign up to hear a replay of that webcast. But in there, I gave an example, I actually showed an asset allocation output that I had shared with a university client back in 2004. And I showed all the, the different asset classes that were in there and the expected return and the expected volatility using the optimization model that we used at the time that was based on modern portfolio theory. And I showed sort of the worst case scenario that that client could expect to experience, which was a negative 15% loss. A year, well, three years later, that and many, many other clients that had sort of that long-term strategic allocation similar to that lost 28% or more. It was an event so rare and so extreme, yet it happened. And it really, really shook me and caused me to rethink modern portfolio theory and this methodology for allocating assets. Because the whole idea behind modern portfolio theory or these optimization models is asset classes are are not perfectly correlated. They will not always move in the same direction. But during that crisis, they did. All correlations went to one. And they moved in tandem, and they went down, except for cash. Cash was not correlated. And, and so I really struggle with that. What, what do I do with, with clients? I mean, we can do, we, I mean, that was sort of the standard. So I continued to use that and, and tried to focus what I say on the podcast often, focus on the extreme, the fact that these extreme events happen more frequently than the theory suggests, that the optimization output suggests, that the, that the Monte Carlo simulation, the simulations that many advisors do suggest. And, but I struggled with it. And when I left my firm in 2012, I didn't have an answer. And I continued to struggle with how to you invest without a map, which is what I think it was episode 23 or 24 on the podcast. I was still struggling with this. I mean, they, part of the beauty of a podcast is I can share with you what I continue to struggle with. And when I launched The Hub last year, part of the reason was because listeners wanted more education and they wanted to know, you know, how was I investing? And so I show my portfolio on there. And my portfolio isn't something that most investors can do because half of it is in private investments. And most investors are, you know, their, their primary investment is their 401k plan if they're based in the U.S. or some other type of, of retirement 
savings vehicle, and they don't have access to the private market. And, and I've had members of the hub ask, Billy is an example, is a member, and he says, you know, will you show modern or, or model portfolios on the hub? In other words, specific allocations that we can use and, and to help us answer this driving question, where should I invest my money? How should I allocate my investments? And what return can I expect from that allocation? And I didn't offer it because, to be perfectly frank, I, I was afraid to do that. I, I was so shook by what happened in 2008 and seeing what happened to those clients and at the same time, having shifted my investments to cash, the vast majority of cash, and missed the downturn, and and missed it for my my parents because I had shifted their portfolio. And yet, you know, one reason I left because I believe that we can allocate and and adjust our allocation based on market conditions. But what I've struggled with since leaving was how frequently do you do that? And I've experimented, right? You can't be moving in and out of the market all the time. That's not practical. You can't catch the bottom. You can't catch the top. And 08 was a very, very extreme event. What happened in 2000 with the internet crash was an extreme event. You can't be making these. I mean, that's like every six or seven years. And so this is something that I've struggled with. How do I allocate and adjust for the, you know, based on market conditions without getting too frenetic at it, recognizing the tax consequences of making changes, the actual, the trading cost of making changes, and just trying to put it all together. And so when I did the webcast, I still didn't tell you what your allocation should be. I gave some expected returns for global equity and global bond and gave some example, but I didn't have a bunch of different asset classes in there. But after reading these survey responses and seeing your challenge, and then I met with Carl Richards of Behavior Gap. He, he's the, the gentleman that does the little cartoons e- each week in, in the New York Times, and he has a book called The One-Page Financial Plan. And he got a great, great keynote, and he talked about that thing – that we feel compelled to do and and the imposter syndrome that we often feel when we do that thing. And his thing was drawing little sketches on napkins to help individuals understand financial concept, the behavior aspect of investing. And he talked about how he felt so in over his head because they wanted to do an art show of his little doodles. And there he was in, in Copenhagen at this fancy museum with his art exhibit of his little sketches on blackboard. And behind him was this, this picture of the sculpture of this Dutch master. And he, and he thought, well, what am I doing? But he does it because it's his thing. And you know, as I listened to that talk and I thought about it, I realized you know, my thing that I do well, even though I don't, don't have all the answers, is asset allocation. Helping clients at my old firm and hopefully – through the hub and through this podcast and through webcast, helping you allocate your assets in a way that you you feel confident. You know, here's the expected return, here's the range of return, and doing it based on market conditions. 
That's my thing. And I, I have avoided, to some extent, doing my thing. I've provided education on the hub. I've talked about investment conditions, whether they're green, red, or yellow, but I've not shown you model portfolios. I even had some responses say, why don't you just go get, get your license back and come manage my retirement and start giving individual investment advice. I'm not going to do that. But I will, in the coming weeks, start rolling out more specific asset allocation help on the hub. And that'll include model portfolios to help you kind of answer that question, how should you allocate your assets? And, and, and I'll follow up with that, you know, are you saving enough for your retirement? The first thing you have to know whether you're saving enough for retirement is what can you earn on your investment portfolio. If you know what you can earn on your investment portfolio or a reasonable range of return over the next 10 years, then that makes it easier to, to figure out, well, what should, how much should I be saving? You know, if this is what I can earn, how much should I save to be able to meet my goal giving my spending rate? I'm going to focus more and more on that in this podcast and on the hub, and in the webcast. I did the webcast. I forgot to hit the record button. It it was a good webcast, but it can be better, and I can put more timely content on the webcast and answer questions to to essentially to to help you with this overarching question. Will you have enough money to save for the retirement? In the Carl Richards book, there's a quote by John Bogle, and he was, he was asked for advice on how to build an investment plan, which is really what we're all struggling with. What is an investment plan or investment allocation? Here's what he said, quote, there might be advice that's better than this, but the amount of advice that is worse is infinite. When I've read the survey responses, what became pretty clear is you trust the independent, objective education that I provide in this podcast in the other venues. And I really, really appreciate this trust. It's the 75th episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I believe that trust. I, I believe I need to accept that trust and be willing to provide more specific asset allocation education, even though perhaps there's better advice out there, but you trust me to provide something, and I could at least provide it, even though I have some hesitancy because I don't have all the answers, and I recognize that. But at least having some expectations based on market conditions and based on the things that I've spent almost 20 years learning can be of somewhat benefit to you. At FinCon, I had lunch and some follow-up discussions with a gentleman that goes by the name of The Practical Guy, at thepracticalguy.com, and I was just on his site, and and it doesn't look like he actually has his his name on there, so I'm going to call him the practical guy. But somebody asked him, how are you invested? And he said, all my portfolio is in IULs, viaticals, and life settlements. He said it really fast, and I didn't catch that. And, and, and later, he said, I'm in IULs, viaticals, and life settlements. And life settlements, I've heard of. They're an investment where you essentially are buying life insurance on someone else. And so when they die, you get the proceeds of that. The IULs completely went over my head. I didn't know what that was because it was an an acronym. 
And later, I, I spoke with him, and he, it's Index Universal Life Insurance Policy. The irony is I had just read a book about that on the, the airplane because listener Bridget, who sold Index Universal Life, had asked me to read this book called – now I don't remember. It's like their retirement miracle, but it was a book all about IULs. And so I got to talk to the practical guy about that and, and learn more about that. And so I, I tell you this because there's a lot more that I'm learning about investing and you can learn, but I, there is, I will have an episode in the coming weeks on life insurance, and we'll talk about term life and index universal life and some of the ins and outs of that. I also read, not that I'm so pro IULs by any means, but I, I definitely want to talk about it because that's a product that's out there that many of you are being approached about. We're also going to relook at peer-to-peer lending. Last week, I got a, a settlement check from a class action suit from Prosper back when I invested and did peer-to-peer lending in 2005, 2006. When I relook at that, I spent I spoke with a gentleman at the conference at length about peer-to-peer lending, and, and I think I need to look at it with fresh eyes because perhaps that is an area of opportunity for investors if, it, if it's done right. So we're going to look at that in an episode in the coming weeks. I'll leave it at that. This is episode 75. So we're kind of taking a break. I admit I was on a plane all of yesterday when I typically Monday do most of the research for this podcast episode that record on Tuesday. So thank you for listening over the past 75 episodes. You can get more information on or at least get get the show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's awesome. You can sign up for my insider's guide. And I email you. Every week I email a summary article of the podcast. So you, you have about a 900 word article that, that encapsulates the bulk of what I said, or at least the essence of it, and it provides a very nice summary. So you get that each week in the, the investors or the insider's guide. If you want more information on the hub, money for the rest of us hub.com is the URL. I will be providing, as I said, in, in the coming weeks as I work out the model portfolios and more specific asset class information in terms of rankings of specific asset class. What what return can you expect over the next 10 years from European stocks or from Japanese stocks? And what is the range of potential returns? And where are they now in terms of valuations, economic and central bank trends, and market internals? So I'm do that for various asset class, and that'll help you hopefully make better asset allocation decisions when you compare them to the the portfolios or the model portfolios in the hub. So that's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Thank you for all those that have left reviews of the podcast on iTunes. I very much appreciate the feedback. Please go ahead, if you haven't, go ahead and fill out the survey, listener survey. I would love to understand what you're struggling with uh, in terms of your, your, your biggest investment challenge right now or money challenge also on that survey. It takes you less than five minutes. I'm trying to get a better sense for who's listening to the podcast. I also want to know which particular episodes resonate most with you or identify you found most helpful, as well as a few other questions. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific situation. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week.